0: Hello and welcome to another edition of The Cure for Insomnia, or as I call it, an episode of The Liberal Lawyer. (sighs) Today's topic isn't exactly what I thought it would be, and it's not because I have nothing to say. It's because after I recorded the first episode, which was if you recall, why it is a sitting president is subject to indictment, I got a message from one of my millions of listeners If Trump can have the largest inauguration ever, I can have millions of listeners, right? It's the way it works. One of the listeners uh, sent me a message and asked me to more fully explain or explicate the Office of Legal Counsel memoranda from 1973 and 2000. And the reason he did that is because he personally spent more than 30 years in his career trying to discern congressional intent regarding statutes that were passed by Congress. And when he listened to the episode, he liked the reasoning, but he was lacking in terms of, he said, well, I wanted to find out more about why it is you feel that the OLC memoranda were, were flawed in their reasoning. So could you explain that a little further? And I said, okay, why not? Let's, we'll do another episode with it's sort of an offshoot of that. And, uh, and this, this episode is going to focus on the OLC memoranda from those two years, 73, 2000, and uh, why it is that the, why it is I, I feel that the reasoning is flawed. Now the re- way we're going to handle this is first, I will give you the reasoning point by point from 1973 memorandum, and then we will cover the 2000 memorandum. And interspersed in here, Uh, Will be some things that will try to explain it for those non attorneys out there. Uh, But also, after I give you the explanation from the memoranda, I will interject point by point my own analysis uh, and why it is that I feel that that the reasoning is either good or not, depending on how that provision or how that uh, point ends up going. So off we go. All right. Now, let's start with the 1973 memorandum. It began by considering whether the plain language of the impeachment and judgment clause, and let me just stop here for a real quick second. Impeachment and judgment under the Constitution is fundamentally different from indictment and conviction in the criminal realm. <clears throat> and you're gonna hear me say something like uh, impeach, in, c- conviction following impeachment in, in a couple of minutes. And when I say conviction following impeachment, I'm talking about the conviction in the constitutional sense, not in the criminal sense. So when I'm talking about conviction in the criminal sense, I will signify that. Anyway, so the question was whether the plain language of the impeachment and judgment clause prohibits the institution of criminal proceedings prior to the removal of an officer, an elected officer, as the result of impeachment and conviction. Now, what that essentially is saying is they examined the language in the Constitution, <clears throat> excuse me, and they were trying to figure out whether there was a constitutional order, a chronological order that was being established. In other words, did somebody need to be impeached and convicted and therefore removed from office first before being uh, criminally indicted, uh, or did it not matter? And what they determined was that since there's no differentiation in the Constitution between the President and any other elected officer of the of the United States government, and because it's traditionally true, or because the language certainly doesn't prohibit it, that somebody who's not the President but still like in Congress or something could be uh, indicted before and criminally indicted before they were constitutionally impeached. Since there's no differentiation there, then there can't be a constitutional order that's established that would apply to one class of elected officer and not the other class of elected officer. In other words, there couldn't be a particular order established for a congressperson, but no particular order established for uh, the president. And so they said, well, since there's no other uh, there's no way to parse that out in other words there's no way to figure out whether the whether the framers meant that the president had a special position vis-a-vis the impeachment and judgment clause then that couldn't possibly be a basis for deciding whether there was uh, whether the president is subject to criminal indictment because obviously people who are not the president are subject to criminal indictment and so they dismissed that possibility as a legal basis for for deciding whether the president is in fact subject to the criminal law while sitting in office. So onwards we go. Next, the 1973 memo considered whether the Constitution's grant of immunity to Congress under Article 1, Section 6 necessarily extends to the president. Now, by way of explanation, the immunity granted under Article 1, Section 6 is this. When a an elected member or a sitting member of Congress is speaking on the floor of either the house or the Senate, then that person enjoys absolute immunity for anything that they might say, not necessarily anything that they might do, but that's another story, but anything they might say. And the question explored by the, Oh, let let me, let me backtrack for just a second. What I mean by that is if you're an elected member of Congress and you're standing on the floor, of either the House or the Senate, and you say something defamatory about a third party, well, you can't be held liable for defamation in that regard. That's in the civil realm. Similarly, if you were to say something that otherwise would be a crime and you're an elected member standing on the floor of the House or the Senate, you also can't be held liable criminally for anything you might say. Now, if you were to literally to commit like a physical crime, it's kind of an open question, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the Speech and Debates Clause. Now, the question explored by the Office of Legal Counsel regarding the Speech and Debates Clause was the following. All right. Was the grant of immunity under Article 1, Section 6 a withdrawal a withdrawal of certain of of complete immunity that's given under the Constitution in other words is the default setting under the Constitution that elected officials have absolute immunity and you only get to remove some of that immunity if the Constitution says so or is the default setting no immunity whatsoever but that you are given a certain amount of immunity by dint of the Constitution. And in something that I find incredible, the OLC decided that there simply wasn't enough historical evidence to make a determination on that. And I find that amazing. And the reason I find that amazing is because the Constitution itself, and the framers pointed out, that the the government it's, is established with limited powers. In other words, the default setting is that our government in this country actually doesn't have any powers, except for the powers that are granted by the Constitution. And so, if the framers set that up as the default setting for the entire government, it does not stand to reason that members of the government would somehow have a different default setting from the whole government itself. So you cannot have a situation, at least I think, where the government starts with no power and is granted powers by the Constitution, but somehow an elected official starts with unlimited power and power is only taken away by the Constitution. That is completely incongruous. By the way... The drafters of the Office of Legal Counsel memorandum from 1973 actually admitted right in the memo that if you started from a position of elected officials having absolute immunity, that's analogous to the king. And if you remember from Civics Class or Episode 1 of this very thrilling series that you're listening to right now, it cannot be the case that every single elected official in our, country's, in our country's government would be analogous to the king. It makes no sense. It's, not, it's antithetical to the whole reason that we have a constitution. And so why the OLC even considered that is beyond comprehension to me and sort of tells you where I'm going with this. Moving on. Next, the 1973 memo evaluated whether the president's special position, and I put that in air quotes, as chief executive of the department of justice would impose too great a conflict such that the president could not simultaneously be prosecutor and defendant. All right. What they're basically asking is, look, they're saying, look, the president is the de facto head of the department of justice because the department of justice exists in the executive branch. (laughs) And so what they're saying is, can it possibly be the case that a president can both be the head of the prosecuting arm of our government and a criminal defendant at the same time? But the the memo recognized ultimately that this problem could be solved by the appointment of a a special prosecutor, you know, in today's world, we have Robert Mueller. And so, in a, what I think was a kind of a wise decision, the Office of Legal Counsel sort of left that one alone because they said, well, we've sort of solved that problem with a, you know, again, the special prosecutor. And so we really needn't consider this any further because since there's already a practical solution to this, why, why bother even open a, opening up that can of worms? That would essentially necessitate if you were to decide that somehow that you couldn't be the president and prosecutor and defendant. Well, what's the special prosecutor doing there? So onwards we go. It's the next segment of the analysis where the Office of Legal Counsel concludes that a sitting president is in fact immune from indictment. It also happens to be, this is the sort of, this is the area where I think that the the olc sort of starts to go off the rails in terms of its uh, analysis we'll get to that okay first the office of legal counsel says that because an elected official cannot be compelled to testify in in person in a court of law that somehow that means that that, that elected official can also not be a criminal defendant because according to the memo it is necessary to have such a defendant physically in the courtroom in order to defend. All right, look. This is flawed reasoning, but let let's continue on why, it, uh, where the o- OLC memo is going with this. The reason, the underlying reasoning, according to the OLC memo, this is again from seventy three. It comes from a notion in our justice system of what we call natural justice. Natural justice being in quotes. In this case, however, that natural justice I think produces anomalous results. All right, what is the natural justice concept that we utilize in our criminal defense system or criminal system? It is this, that if, if a person is not available or simply makes themselves unavailable to be present, at least at the very beginning of the proceedings, in other words. If they are completely in absentia, then we don't try criminal, pr- criminal defendants in this country because we believe that a person should be able to face their accuser. I mean, the Constitution has a right to face your accuser under, under, the, under I think it's the Sixth Amendment. Um, and so if, you're, if a person is in absentia, then that violates the constitutional principles. It violates what we consider to be natural justice. And so the reasoning here is they're saying, look, the president is, or I should say, any an elected official in this country cannot be compelled to come into court to testify in person. And if they can't be compelled to do that, then it amounts to be them being in absentia. So if they can't be compelled to testify, then they can't be forced into the courtroom then they are in absentia and therefore you cannot criminally charge them with anything that is hogwash (laughs) the reason it's hogwash is because most of the generally speaking the the inability to compel a uh, an elected official from being present in a courtroom to testify that generally applies when the person is a witness a third party witness to for some reason whether it's civil or criminal makes no difference and that person is not themselves subject to uh, either being a defendant in a civil matter or a defendant in a criminal matter and so the outcome of the of the case isn't really going to affect their lives also the flip side of that is they didn't do anything. They're simply a third party. I personally think it's a little different when you are actually the defendant for a couple of reasons. Number one, you did something. You did something to hurt someone. Now, in the civil realm, it might be breach of contract or defamation or something. In the criminal realm, you might have shot someone on Fifth Avenue, who knows? But this this idea that you have immunity from being compelled to testify as a third party witness, that somehow that that equates to your escaping criminal liability in its entirety is a bizarre concept to me, particularly because in our country, immunity and rights, for example, the right against self-incrimination under the Fifth Amendment can both be waived If the waiver is knowing, voluntary, and I think it's intentional, KVI, knowing, voluntary, oh, informed, informed, KVI, knowing, voluntary, and informed. And so one would think that, especially a president, but any elected official, one would think that you're supposed to want to put country over party, and certainly country over self-interest, but I suppose obviously if you're you know if you're a criminal you're probably not putting country over self interest or country over party i mean you're a criminal after all so maybe that's a little too much to ask but the point is that the application of the immunity principle which really applies in the third party context as a, as a witness simply does not translate very well to an elected official in whom has been placed a certain amount of public trust and from whom is expected a certain amount of integrity and fair dealing. And so in my opinion, the idea that you have to abide by natural justice simply because of some immunity concept is to use a legal term bunk. And when you look at it from a logical standpoint or from a legal standpoint, then you have to say to yourself, well, in 1973, the people who drafted the Office of Legal Counsel memo, when they got to this part, they were, they were not seeing the forest for the trees. They were saying to themselves, well, from a strict legal sense, if you can't put somebody in a courtroom, well, then you can't try them criminally. No, that's not true at all especially not with an elected official, especially not with all the things that I just said about public trust and integrity and putting country over party country over self, that sort of thing that it simply, it it breaks down as a legal concept because in the, in the final analysis, the anomalous legal result that's set up here is that if you want to commit crimes, if you want to screw over your country and sell out your country the way that General Flynn did and the way that the the cronies in the White House are doing and and everything else, then all you have to do is get yourself elected or or confirmed, I guess. Uh, Essentially, if you get yourself elected, you're free to be a criminal under that reasoning. And if that makes sense to you, well, maybe there's a problem with you, but it doesn't make any sense from a logical, legal, or human standpoint. Onwards we go. The memo then offers the absurd argument that indictment for a serious crime would be too disabling. By the way, this is now, they have now decided that you're free to be a criminal if you're an elected official because you have this weird sort of out. And they're going now they're going on to actually justify this position somehow by bringing in what I think are totally not totally nonsensical arguments so they're now saying that indictment for a serious crime would be too disabling for a president because it would interfere with the president's ability to carry out the duties of the office are you kidding me the person's a criminal and we're basically giving them a free pass to continue to carry out the duties of the office they are defrauding the united states And we're giving them a pass? Are you kidding? However, the OLC then blows up its own argument by also saying in the memo that if the crime were minor in nature, their resulting distraction to the president would not be so great as to constitute a constitutional impediment to the functioning of the office. This reminds me of the old story, and I forget who it was, probably W.C. Fields, Or maybe it was Winston Churchill. I don't remember, but said to a woman, "Would you sleep with me for a million dollars?" Well, no. Would you? I mean, uh, would you sleep with me for five dollars? No. Would you sleep with me for a million dollars? Well, yeah. Now we're just negotiating on price, right? I mean, the the point is that if the if the president can be in, can be indicted for a minor crime because the amount of time that's going to be taken away from their busy schedule is only minor, but can't be indicted for a major crime because it would take too much time away from their busy schedule, that is stupid reasoning. It is in, inane. It is s- stupid. I mean, I, I don't know how else to say that, really. But as icing on this cake... The OLC then spread an extra layer of hogwash by saying that, oh, be still my beating heart, wounding the president could be too damaging to the constitutional structure. No, it wouldn't. The whole reason we have a constitutional structure with a line of succession is literally to fill in the vacuum that is created when we have a president who is too criminally corrupt or even morally or ethically bankrupt to continue on in the office. It's why the vice president would take over or in the, in the absence of the vice president, why the speaker of the house would take over. The point is the constitution is set up to be a very resilient sort of framework. And we have a government that'll function perfectly fine without somebody at the top. But the OLC in its zeal to protect this president in, again, 1973, remember who the president was, it was Nixon, wasn't, you know, this one, sets up this, this bizarre sort of mental gymnastics way of dealing with the constitution and comes to the conclusion that somehow you need a president in order for the government to function. No, you don't. We know this from history. In fact, If I recall correctly, back in 2000, I'm old enough to remember that, when we didn't have a president-elect for three and a half weeks, and then the corrupt Supreme Court simply installed George W. Bush, but that's another story. Nobody seemed to get too upset about the fact that we didn't actually have a president-elect. We still had a president, of course. I mean, Bill Clinton was still in his lame-duck kind of area uh, following the election, but... We, it doesn't really break down the government to have an incapacitated president. Um, it, it's just not true. And as the, final, <laughs> as the final piece de resistance to this absolutely stupid argument, the D- Office of Legal Counsel in 1973 said, you know what? We also can't allow a president to be criminally indicted because we don't want a jury of 12 people to overturn a national election are you st- ah! a jury of 12 people would not be overturning the election that absolutely ignores that long before a jury of 12 gets the case that the FBI has to do an investigation the Department of Justice actually has to evaluate the evidence the Attorney General because it probably would be the attorney general actually has to decide that an indictment is appropriate. Then an indictment needs to be filed. The person needs to be arraigned. Discovery needs to be gone through all sorts of hoops need to be jumped through before a jury ever gets this case. But no, the morons who drafted this at the OLC, they simply jumped right to the end and they're like, well, of course the jury would get it. No, you fucking morons. Jury's not going to get it immediately, and so a a jury of 12 people aren't simply going to get to overturn the election. There's a lot of procedure that goes through this. And somehow the OLC just sort of skipped all that. You can tell that I'm not a real fan of how the OLC kind of reasons things through and does things. I think they're a bunch of idiots. Onwards we go. The memo continues by recounting the argument made by the Solicitor General in 1973 regarding the constitutional textual differences between the office of the president and all the other officers of the government. Now, as I read the memo, that argument rested on the idea that the greater weight is to be given to the fact that before assuming the responsibilities of the presidency, A replacement must be duly sworn in. Well, duh. Every elected officer has to be sworn in, as far as I can tell. But to the Solicitor General, this distinction meant that the incapacitation of a president necessarily impaired the office in a way that was not true of any other office within the the government. Are you kidding? Personally? This places too much importance on a formality. Again, all officers must take an oath, By the way, your oath is to the Constitution, as far as I know. So this is really of more pomp and circumstance from 1787 or 1789, late 1780s. And as we'll see in a moment, uh, the notion that the the office suffers when the president is bothered with the distraction of litigation is nothing more than pure partisan hackery. By the way, did I, did, I, did I mention the name of the Solicitor General in 1973? You might recognize this name. Wasn't the absolute best person on the planet, Robert Bork. Now, it's true that the Solicitor General wasn't the OLC guy who, who actually drafted or people who drafted the memos, but you can see where I'm going with this. Okay, this the, the 1973 memo, and by the way, the 2000 memos know no better, and mind you, it the 2000 memo was actually put together by... A democrat but that's another story the two thousand the 1973 memo is not a good piece of, of reasoning now the memo from the year 2000 really does not oppose the 1973 memos basis for concluding that a president can't be or sitting president can't be indicted it, it, does, it just basically kind of passes on the flawed reasoning and after the after recounting the earlier memo, um, what the memo of 2000 does is it, it goes <laughs> it, it continues on with a recap of three cases that it considered relevant that had been that had been decided since the 1973 uh, memo was drafted. And it gives a um, gives sort of a breakdown, if you will, an excuse me, an analysis of why it is that those three cases that had been decided since 1973 fell right in line with the 1973 memo and therefore all is good and a sitting president can't be indicted. Again, complete, this is, this is complete garbage. But let's go on. The three cases that it considered were U.S. v. Nixon, Nixon v. Fitzgerald, and Clinton v. Jones, for all those of you old enough to remember <laughs> what happened there. Um, it's interesting to note, by the way, that while clinton, clinton versus jones was decided nearly a decade before uh, our current chief justice john roberts was elevated to the to the supreme court as chief justice i think in '06 by george, george w bush that the the case of clinton versus jones essentially blows out of the water one of john roberts's recent defenses of the supreme court when he'd said that essentially justices or judges don't have red jerseys and blue jerseys when they go to work in the morning. Yeah, they do. And and Clinton v. Jones absolutely laid that bare. We'll get to that. But the three cases that were decided again, uh, Nick, Nixon, us v. Nixon, Nixon v. Fitzgerald and Clinton v. Jones. Um, they were talking about separation of powers grounds, why it is a, a sitting president is immune from criminal indictment. What, see, when, when we got into the civil realm, the courts had to do sort of some gymnastics here. And what they, what they figured, what they had to do was, they had to say to themselves, well, if, if a president is immune from being criminally indicted, would they still be immune from being civilly, uh, civilly sued on the same grounds? And they sort of kind of split it up so that no, they said, well, on civil, when you're talking about the civil realm, it's a completely different matter. It's, you know, they, they, they made, they made certain decisions and we'll get to those in just a second or just a minute. And so they sort of split the baby and they said, well, you know, we're going to, we're going to treat these differently. Personally, I think that was hogwash also, but the doctor, doc, they, they, they did this on separation of powers grounds by saying, look, the, it is not up to the courts to infringe or to diminish the presidential office in any way by simply uh, trampling all over what is the province of the president, uh, and, and that would be in the criminal area but somehow they didn't see a huge problem with it in the civil area. I actually see a problem with it either way, if you're going to look at it that way, but I'm also of the opinion legally speaking that you can indict a sitting president. So in my view, if the, if you can indict a sitting president criminally, of course a sitting president would be liable for a civil matter, but the, the Supreme, the Supreme court, and federal courts decided somehow that, that there was a difference. Um, But here's where, the, here's where the court's reasoning starts to break down. Nixon v. Fitzgerald and U.S. v. Nixon weren't really as relevant, although it's interesting to note that the Supreme Court for quite a while now has been in the red jersey hands, and this is where John Roberts' John Roberts's argument starts to get blown out of the water. And I think it's no accident that uh, when it came to a former Republican president, somehow the Supreme Court was willing to give all, they were basically willing to bend over backwards or forwards and not use KY if you want to go that route. Um, and they were basically willing to say, well, Republican presidents get complete dispensation because after all, we do wear red jerseys on a, on a conservative Supreme Court. And yes, they do, Mr. Roberts, Mr. Chief Justice, you are dead wrong. But when it came to a Democrat president, Mr. Clinton, uh, somehow all of a sudden all their 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 brains got scrambled and their legal reasoning went out the door and they were like oh of course this is this is good this is this is okay because they said somehow that <laughs> that even a significant burden when it came to Clinton v Jones even a significant burden of time on the part of remember a Democrat president certainly not a Republican president jerk offs um a significant burden of time. When it came to a Democrat president, was okay. Because, sex, <laughs> I'm not actually sure. I mean, to me, if you can't burden a president by taking up too much time in the criminal realm, how is the time that they have to spend defending a civil case worth any less? It's still time away from the from the presidency, right? At least, as far as I can tell, but in the case of a Democrat president, a Rehnquist-led court decided that well, somehow the time is the time isn't really the time anymore. It's it's either it either doesn't exist or it's worth a lot less, and so we're going to let this we're going to let this happen. To me, that's abject hypocrisy. It's also legally wrong. If you're if you are again, it's legally wrong if you are assuming that there is a difference between criminal and civil matters i've already articulated that i don't think there's a difference whatsoever i think i think a president constitutionally and legally is subject to both criminal indictment and to civil matters it does not matter but in the in the supreme court realm somehow it did matter but then they said well if you're going to be criminally indicted the time you would spend being a defendant is simply too great but the time being the time spending being spent in as a defendant in a civil matter for somehow somehow doesn't matter it's it's irrelevant I don't see the difference you've been listening to me for I don't know how many minutes now and you can't get that time back whether you're entertained or whether you want to throw stuff at the computer because you don't like what I'm saying is irrelevant time is time correct fair and balanced huh I don't think so pile the um, bullshit on even thicker the OLC memo of the year 2000 actually goes on to cite three considerations and I put consideration in air quotes considerations in air quotes that it says form the basis of why that memo the one from the year 2000 was still in agreement with the OLC memo from 1973 those considerations according to OLC of 2000 are number one Actual imposition of a sentence uh, on the ability of the president to do the job. Number two, this is in criminal matters now. Number two, the public stigma that would impair the president's ability to do the job if they were criminally charged. Number three, oh, be still my beating heart. The mental and physical burdens of preparing for trial as an impediment to the president's ability to do the job. Okay, let's stop for a second. (laughs) You have to marvel at the absolute hypocrisy of this sort of reasoning. Both memos, 1973 and 2000, acknowledge that the criminal justice system is particularly well suited to handle people who are in fact committing acts that are criminal in nature. Why should it matter if it's you or me or the president of the United States? If nobody's above the law, then why not hand them over to the criminal justice system and allow that system to do its job? Does that sound familiar? Both memos state, in a 1984-ish kind of way, that no person is above the law, but somehow they go on to somehow they go on to say that we actually do have a king or a queen if we had a, a female president, because they're talking out of both sides of their mouths. It's called doublespeak. They're saying, "Well, you're not above the law, but somehow you're above the law because you you don't have to." be subject to criminal indictment, even though that makes no sense factually or legally or constitutionally. Both memos 1973 and 2000 state that subjecting the president to criminal indictment would result in diverting. Oh, again, be still my beating heart too much time away from the responsibilities of the office, such that the impairment on the presidency would be constitutionally impermissible. No, it wouldn't. Clinton v. Jones said otherwise. Clinton v. Jones said, take as much time as you need as long as this is in the civil civil realm. But God forbid you should take the same amount of time in the criminal realm. Which is more important, that we prosecute a criminally corrupt president or that we take up all the president's time trying to figure out whether there's stains on dresses? The memo from the year 2000 somehow sees its way clear to differentiating an excessive consumption of time in the civil case from an excessive consumption of time in the criminal realm. I've already told you why that's nonsense. And yet, while both memos state, once again, in a kind of 1984 sort of way, that everybody's equal under the law, but neither memo, neither memo, addresses the fact that indictment under the criminal law is designed precisely to stop people in the president's office to continuing to continue doing the criminal things that make them unfit for the job and quite frankly inimical to the operation of the United States of America this is bullshit <laughs> it's bizarre am i missing something i don't think you can abs- i don't think you can square i don't think you can square the reality that the law is in fact being applied in a completely unequal way despite their pronouncements (sighs) both memos 1973 and 2000 seem to operate and I've said this earlier in this conversation Seem to operate under the absolutely flawed premise that if a president were taken out of the Oval Office for a reason by reasons of being criminally indicted or whatever that the entire country would somehow come crashing down around us no it wouldn't, we know this, historically we know this. Anyway, the remainder of the year 2000, the memo from the year 2000, uses contrived and what I think are tortured foundational questions to find support in the case law for an idea that undue interference with the ability of a president to do, a jo- to do the job translates to constitutional immunity from the indictment. No, it doesn't. And the memo, in, in doing that, in, in extending the tortured analysis, it ignores three very basic glaring errors with its own analysis. Number one, it does not really square with the idea that, again, time consumed in a civil lawsuit is not, e- is not equal to, to time consumed in a criminal lawsuit. They're the same. The time spent is exactly the same. Number two, it, it ignores that it doesn't square with the oft-repeated refrain that no person is above the law. Once again, of course it's applying the law, unequally. it's saying that if you're the president, you get special dispensation, and if you're the rest of us, including you know everybody up to the vice president, you don't get special dispensation. That, that is, if we had a system that was not designed to fill in a power vacuum, then I might kind of be able to see my way clear to that. But the Constitution is specifically designed to ensure a functioning government under virtually all circumstances. So that argument fails spectacularly. Finally, the OLC of 2000 memo, actually both memos, they fail to recognize the absolute harm that is being done but to the country. When you have what amounts to a criminal sitting in the Oval Office, running the government, running the DOJ, and essentially, somehow, because of this tortured reasoning of the memos from 1973 and 2000, being totally immune from, from, from being held accountable, despite the fact that they should be. I mean, legally, constitutionally, and re, and, and, practica- and practically. They are to be held accountable, and yet the tortured reasoning from both of these memos indicates that as long as you get yourself elected, you can go off and be as much a criminal as you like. And if you know the Constitution and you know the law, you can basically avoid prosecution. That's not the way it's supposed to work. And the OLC memos completely ignore that. And this is why I said in episode one that the OLC memoranda from 1973 to end 2000 absolutely got it ass backwards. They afforded to the president kind of this default setting of blanket immunity and blanket ability to escape prosecution and totally forgot or ignored that the the Constitution itself is set up from a default setting of zero and to grant certain limited powers and immunities to the government. And if that's the case, then the opposite cannot be true for the members of the government. If you think about it logically, this has been the liberal lawyer. Maybe it's not the cure for insomnia. I don't know. But I hope you've enjoyed it. I look forward to our next meeting. Thanks.